Welcome to the Modern Savage Podcast. This is episode three. On this episode, I'm again joined by Ross, as well as his friend Matt, who in addition to being a fellow world traveler and adventurer, is a leader and one of the driving forces behind the Hunger Task Force, a Milwaukee-based organization committed to the reduction of hunger through service, education, and advocacy. All right, so how does a guy from Tosa end up in, in Santa Cruz? Yeah, so when you first get to the West Coast as a kid that grew up, you know, in the Great Lakes area, uh, and a group of, you know, 19 to 23-year-old guys uh, say to you, do you want to train in the Redwoods or do you want to train on the beach? It pretty much has you... As you hooked. hooked. Yeah. And uh-huh. and uh, asking where you sign, basically. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. And so had you, you'd been out there before. You said that your brother was in San Diego and he went out there for law school, you said? Yeah. When you, when you have older siblings, right, you're, you're looking up to them and you're following them. And so if you have an older brother who's 10 years older than you, uh, everything that he does is, is, you know, pretty... <sighs> It's just idolizing, right? So, uh, you know, you you idolize your your big brother um, when you're a little boy, especially I think. Sure. And so, yeah, he's uh, taking me, teaching me how to snowboard um, at uh, Little Switz uh, here uh, in the uh, southeastern Wisconsin area, and sure. then later on, you know, to the likes of Vale and whatnot, mm-hmm. and then showing you surfing in San Diego. Sure. Uh, as a as a kid, it has you thinking, okay, maybe. Maybe uh, I'm going to also explore areas outside of uh, Milwaukee. Yeah. And so when you went out there, so four years in Santa Cruz, and what was that like? Yeah, so I, I played soccer, and that was one of the um, kind of leading uh, premises of, uh, of that mm-hmm. transition out there, um, sure. was going to play soccer with, this, uh, with the university and, you know, going to school, um, you know, throughout that process. So, mm-hmm. uh the campus there in at UC Santa Cruz right. it must be the most beautiful campus you know in the United States you know if not it's up in the discussion sure uh, because it is literally nestled into a California state redwood preserve oh, okay uh, on um, a on the western front of the Santa Cruz mountains looking down into Monterey Bay Oh, wow. Uh, with Santa Cruz on the town of city of Santa Cruz underneath it. And then Monterey in the distance and the Pacific Ocean just all in front of you. Sure. Uh, I mean, so it, the, the campus is such that you can uh, go from one building to the next via trail um, through a redwood forest. Of course you can. <clears throat> Why wouldn't you be able to? Right. California. <laughs> <laughs> They got some things right. I mean, that's right. So where's Santa Cruz in comparison to Santa Barbara? I don't know my geography out there real well. Yeah, so Santa Barbara is in between Los Angeles um, and San Francisco. Yes. And so if you continue north from Santa Barbara, uh, a couple hours later, you'll run into Santa Cruz. Oh, it's that much farther north. So Santa Cruz is about an hour and a half south of San Francisco on the coast. Um, in between the two is Big Sur. Mm-hmm. And so when you're out as a student there then, uh, especially growing up in Wauwatosa, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, you want to check out all those places. Yeah. 
Uh, and so uh, whether you're going to Lake Tahoe, whether you're going to the northern coast, whether you're going to Big Sur, whether you're going to L.A., you, know, you want to see all that California has to offer, right? Especially Quite as, a bit, as right? an outdoor enthusiast, too. And so that's that was the big draw um, was as a kid growing up around here who wanted to experience the wilderness. Sure. California. Yeah. yeah. Were, you, were you always into outdoors kind of stuff? Did your family do that growing up or no? Yeah. I mean, even, even you know, growing up in Milwaukee um, and uh, there's things like uh, the Menominee River uh, and the Menominee River Parkway, which, uh, you know, it's interesting when you're a kid, those things seem so big to you and seem um, like you're out in the wilderness when actually you're in like a kind of little suburban forest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so at that scale, uh, yes. Um, but then I would say in high school, uh, had an opportunity, um, w- it was given to me as a gift actually, was a, uh, a trip to go up to Lake Superior and explore uh, Pictured Rocks National Lakeshore. So it's part of the national park system. Um, there's about um, 45 miles um, of wilderness on 40-foot sandstone bluffs overlooking this aquamarine Lake Superior, which, you know, it's the cleanest of all the Great Lakes. Uh, I mean, it's really that pure feeling uh, of the wilderness. There's virgin hemlock forest. There's a 12-mile long beach uh, with rivers running down into the water from there. People go there for ice climbing in the winter because there's lots of waterfalls. It's as far as uh, the northern uh, wilderness goes, that's pretty epic. Yeah. I mean, so is this something that your parents did or is it something that you sort of came to on your own or, I mean, yeah, on, you know, on when you're own. a kid, I agree. Like you go into those, you, like you said, you go to those little tiny forests, which when you're a child, they seem monumental, but it, it captures your imagination. And if that stays with yeah. you and you grow into that, you begin to naturally have that desire to expand, you know, where you were like that curiosity, like what else is out there? So that's something that you and I definitely share where it's what's over the next hill, what's around the, you know, what's around the bend, what's over the horizon. And that desire to sort of see where it is that you find yourself, but then where maybe you could go from there. So is that something that was fostered in the family or is that something, where did that come from for you? Yeah. Interestingly, I think that that's innate. Uh, for me personally. Okay. Uh, so just cultivated through experiences that I sought. Right. Um, and so definitely got, uh, like I said, thank big brother, uh, you know, for, uh, the introduction, but is that something that you and he have continued to do in, in adulthood? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, we're, we're skiing buddies. Okay. Uh, so we'll go out and, and ski, uh, together. And so that's kind of, that's a big way that we explore the mountains together. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, and that, yeah. What's some of the best, like, when you think about the places that you and your brother have gone or things that you've been introduced to, like, either with him or because of him, like, what, what comes at the top of the list? New Zealand. Okay. Yeah. Uh, right. So, uh, I, yeah, I actually, I actually went from Santa Cruz to New Zealand. Okay. Uh, I, I spent uh, about a year and a half there. Okay. Um, so did a little study abroad program in New Zealand because, like I said, I went out to California for the wilderness, and New Zealand uh, is uh, world renowned. Sure. For that. Uh, so next step in uh, for anybody who likes um, backpacking and really getting out there, um, 
for me was just to keep going west and so i went out to new zealand and then big brother caught up with me this time okay um so it's like <coughs> where are you going to school not not where's <laughs> where's he going to school anymore and so and what yeah. did you do while you were in new zealand uh, so we got a car and drove uh, drove around the South Island. Uh, New Zealand is uh, two islands. Right. Um, it's roughly the size of California. Right. Uh, and then uh, the the Northern Island is far more populated. Um, and it, the one of the amazing things about it is you go from the north of the Northern Island, where uh, it's called uh, the Bay of Islands, and so this is subtropical. Um, you know, almost like what you'd think of as, um, you know, it's like a, it's a Polynesian island. Mm. Uh, it's Polynesian culture. Um, it's the Maori. Maori. It's the Maori. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Maori people, and like they, like so, they're in, they're in the north of the north, and then you go to like the Lord of the Rings wilderness in the south of the south, where uh, there's epic mountains and glaciers. Sure. Uh, and then. As uh, you start getting relatively close to Antarctica, and so there's penguins, you know, at the far south. So from the north of the north, where it's Polynesian, to the south of the south, where, where there's penguins, right? Uh, it's just a really um, diverse um, environment and geography landscape to explore, and so it's kind of a uh, uh, and and they've taken very um, seriously and intelligently. Um, they're set up for um, ecotourism, and so mm -hmm. people like me who would travel to a place like that um, to get on the trail system sure. as one of their primary motivations, uh, it's it's catered to that. So there's there's huts, and so you can get out um, into the backcountry and and just hike from one cabin, one you know wood fashioned cabin out in the woods to the next over a few days. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like, you know, kind of like the Appalachian Trail or something like yeah. that. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that that's, I mean, certainly we have things like that available to us here in the States. I think a lot of people probably don't take advantage of it. I know people that have done things like the AT. Um, and it's always just a, people come away from that, you know, just being like, wow, I had this sort of revelatory experience of all the things that I saw or did or people that I met or, mm -hmm. you know, experiences that I had along the way. So... And you were there for a year and a half? Yeah, a year and a half. Um, was able to convince some professors at Santa Cruz that I had a good relationship with that it made the most sense for me to just finish my undergrad um, in New Zealand. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, you know, whereas a lot of uh, traditional study abroad programs kind of force you to do it uh, second semester of your junior year so that you come back for your senior year and you finish at the campus. I, f I finished and then, uh, you know, voila. In New Zealand. In New Zealand. What did you? Well, I mean, so what, what, was, you, so what, what did you, you do study? next? Yeah. What did you study? I mean, like what, like in college, what was? Yeah. What was your... Yeah. So I was doing religious studies, which really? is which is more of like the historical, um, anthropological, uh, you know, cultural study of religion versus religion as a practitioner. So it's not sure, uh, you're right. not studying theology as, right. as a practitioner of a particular religion. It's yeah. more of the, the culture um, and the history of it. Yeah. And the influence of religion upon all those things. Really? Yeah. That is a fascinating. Okay. So you're the first person I've ever met that has studied that. Really? And like, yeah. Well, I mean, but like, yeah, it, it's, it's a, it, how does I, one get into that? As a, I, th as I a, think it's a, uh, it's, it's kind of a, a detour from history, really. Yeah, uh, So, absolutely. you know, it's uh, primarily driven um, from history, but then also um, psychology. Um, there's a lot of, like, um, the 
psychology of religion um, is fascinating. So, uh, yeah, you know, it's when, you know, when you're, uh, 19, 20, 21 years old, sometimes you just follow what's interesting to you versus what's, uh, like pragmatically uh, applicable to some particular career it's, path. It's the complete opposite of how I approach <laughs> my life. I mean, in hindsight, I wish I could go back and be like that, but I yeah. wasn't, I was like, what can I do to get a job? Right. You know, that was basically my goal, but your sounds way much more interesting, way better. Well, yeah. Well, that's that's how that's how you end up, um, you know, working at a nonprofit. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you're in New Zealand. You finish up. You're done. And now what? Yeah. Now what? So now it's time to play. <laughs> uh, because that's what you do now that you have a college degree apparently <laughs> as opposed to Let's getting play. a job like you and I did we had it all had, wrong oh, man I just we did this 180 group. degrees the wrong I direction don't, I like fuck yes okay yeah, can we rewind it like 20 years let's get let's get back to it I was so it, broke my senior year of college I couldn't pay attention right <laughs> this guy's in New Zealand like he's like just balling out of control exactly. now I guess I'm ready to play because I've only been hiking around and you know like <laughs> Studying, you know, people's yeah. affinity for a higher power. Now I gotta, I need to kick back. I'm stressed out, man. I'm <laughs> burning the candle at both Saw ends. Saw too many penguins. Can't handle exactly. It. <laughs> All right, so like, so you gotta pop play. the top collar yeah. button and unwind a little yeah, bit. Right. Okay, yeah. so after so, this so grueling happens? academic, yeah. uh, you know, yes. foray yes. into, you know, the uh, yes into Monterey and then into the double uh, major oh. double major in surfing and soccer from Santa Cruz and then you you know par- parlay into you can hear the violins <laughs> playing in the background saddest story I've ever heard <laughs> alright so you're in uh, New Zealand and you finish up and now it's time to play so what are we what are we doing yeah so there are national parks uh, at the um, southwest corner of New Zealand um, in particular it's called Fjordland National Park and this is where um, the Milford Trek um, is which uh, might be the most renowned hiking trail on the planet Uh, and so people travel from all around the world to uh, see the Milford Sound you know and so um, you know it's called Fjordland um, National Park for a reason uh, because these glacial carved uh, fjords uh, out um, in the ocean uh, yeah. make their way in and out of the landscape of, of New Zealand so it's very uh, you know like Scandinavian uh, sure. you know in that in that respect uh, so there's there's glaciers that you can visit and so like that was part of what we would do um, is go explore the different glaciers so I, I was on each of the glaciers there multiple times uh, uh, you know throughout the course of that time um, I mean, we did some uh, ice uh, climbing on the glaciers um, my when my brother came to visit uh, we, we balled out and so we got we went in a chopper uh, and uh, and you know took a, a chopper up above the glacier um, to where you know you could see down into the um, crevasses as you're like um, flying and then they land on the glacier so like now you land on the glacier, put on your crampons, have your ice axe, and go um, explore. Uh, and so those are some of the things that we did. Went on a went on a 14 uh, day uh, backpacking hike. 
uh, okay. out into Fjordland National Park. So, you Just know, you pa- pack everything. Uh, actually, me and one of my buddies from from UC Santa Cruz. Uh, oh, there was a, okay. another banana slug um, alum mm-hmm. uh, at that point, and uh, so we both studied abroad in New Zealand. We were we were buds, and we had kind of planned this all out. So uh-huh. now here we are, and we're gonna go explore uh, the the epic places um, down sure. in the South Island. So, so yeah, uh, we we did something like that where. 14 days don't see another person uh and we're we we brought uh fly fishing rods and you're we, fly fishermen too we were, yeah we were we were trout fishing out in the uh in the rivers um doing some doing some I mean, dangerous like river crossings where mm-hmm. you know you really have to know what you're doing these are places where you know people get people get rescued correct we were <laughs> right. talking about that earlier yeah, yeah. <clears throat> just be just be young and and uh, it's only in retrospect where you look back and you're like hmm yeah perhaps not the best decision <laughs> <laughs> right yeah no i think we've all probably had a few of those yeah yeah so um and you know when you're in new zealand you definitely gotta check out the glowworm caves because um i mean when else are you gonna have a chance to see a glowworm cave you know so you can literally paddle through um cave systems mm. uh where uh, in the dark mm. that are lit up above you like constellations in the sky mm. um by glowworms oh. uh and so they just i mean and then uh you know They've got uh, they've got uh, kayaking um, around uh, around islands, so you can kayak. You were were doing this. This was approximately yeah two thousand four five in there. Two thousand four five. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What were you doing in two thousand four (laughs) five? In two thousand four, I think I was probably uh, I was in grad school at that time. I was already married for two years. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Where were you guys living? Ah, let's see, two thousand four. Uh, Milwaukee, yeah. Oh, yeah. We were living in Milwaukee then. It was before we moved to Tucson. Yeah. Tucson road biking mecca. Yeah, yeah. It is a road biking mecca. That's, yeah. Like I've talked about before, I went down there with a mountain bike and rock climbing gear, thinking I was just gonna have the best year of my life, and all of a sudden I'm road riding with everybody, and that's it's just how it is down there. That's yeah. what, that's what everybody does. And yeah. It was great, but uh, it's not what I expected for sure. Um, but yeah, man. I mean, as far. <laughs> Like between you two, I feel like I haven't gone anywhere as far as like <laughs> geographically in the world. You know, we're gonna have to organize a trip. I think, yeah, yeah maybe like a, a maybe a climbing idea. trip. Where did you get into climbing? New Zealand. Did you? Yeah. Um, and you had so, not climbed before you went down there. Yeah, um, there's a place called uh, Castle Rock, uh, and uh, so I, I had been uh, climbing in California um, a couple times. Uh, okay. Was introduced to it by the guy. Um, shout out Jay Z. Um, who then tr- studied abroad with me in New Zealand. So okay. my, my buddy from California, who's sure. a climber and mm-hmm. knows his stuff uh, and was a fly fishing guide in Alaska for every um, summer when we were in college. So, you know, a lot of these adventures, like he's, you know, he's got the fishing expertise. He has the climbing expertise. Always helps to know the right people. It's great. Yeah. So we're... Uh, bouldering mostly um, around New Zealand um, didn't have the gear with us and so we were mostly just finding uh, finding rock where we could and yeah. um, bouldering around as we traveled around that's awesome yeah uh, met, but uh, it's a big big place for backpackers uh, so there's a just a whole culture there of people that are also there to um, you know uh, screw off and 
uh, have fun and and it's travel. It's just a different set of priorities. Yeah, there's I think a, that that's I yeah. think geographically, if you go to certain places, especially if you go to places that have big waves, big mountains, things like that, like those places have a tendency to draw people that are looking for those kinds of things and your priorities are something different, right? If you're looking for Wall Street, you're not moving out to, you know, the Rockies, yeah, right? Right. You're moving to Manhattan. But if you're, conversely, if you're looking for the opposite of that, then that's that's where you're going to go. I mean, I think I've, I've met people from all over the world, you know, we'll go out to Colorado and we'll pick a 14er that we want to summit and just you're on the trail and, you know, one of the things that I love is languages. And so if you have an ear for it, you're listening, you're like, oh, guy's Japanese or girl's Austrian or whatever. And, you know, pretty much everyone can speak enough of each other's language that you can navigate a little bit of a conversation. Yeah. And I would say that, you know, most of the people that I've ever met, I would say that there's a few pursuits that almost everyone I've ever met that does them is cool. Mm-hmm. I would say rock climbing bow hunting and jujitsu almost every person that i've ever met that is into that is cool and that's a that's a great thing to have you know you meet somebody out on a trail on a mountain that you've never met before and you strike up a conversation you sit down and maybe have a coffee and here's my email address and here's my email address and the next time you're in finland right (laughs) look me up and but then you do if you travel right if you are one of these people that's out to see the world as we are and you've got a backpack and a passport and you're like i'm going to finland and you remember that time that you were in you know wherever and you know you met that guy or that girl and you shoot him an email and that's super cool i mean i i have friends all over the globe now because of of those very experiences and that i think is one of the probably the parts of life that i enjoy the most where have you traveled internationally i've been to a lot of places mm. um most recently, we were just in uh, Slovenia, um, which is really cool. Um, but I've been all over Europe. I've been to Africa. I've been down to Central America uh, some. So I just, and I, one of the things I think that, that really got me down this past year was the fact that I, we couldn't travel, that everything was so locked down. And I was hopeful that that would change this year, but I really don't think that it's going to. I think, you know, we have family in a lot of different countries, but uh, my wife's cousin was going to get married um, and she lives in England, but the wedding was going to be, initially it was going to be in Sicily. Um, but, uh, that, that was supposed to be last year and didn't play out obviously. Um, and then got put on hold, uh, and then it was going to be in England this year. Uh, and even that now we just got, the word is unfortunately been canceled. So it's, um, but one of the things that I'm looking forward to this year is if I can't travel internationally, then I'm just going to go hard domestically. And you know, and I think that people always think that, you know, you have to look for this far-flung land. But, mm. man, there's a lot of sweet stuff here just mm-hmm. in the lower 48 <clears throat> if you're willing to go and, and, and look for it. What's on your list? I'd love to see Monument Valley. Yeah. I've never seen that. Um, and that's something, like, I have not spent a ton of time in the Southwest, but I'd really like to see that in particular and, and get out there and just sort of, yeah, um, cruise around a little bit. Yeah, so you can you can really pretty efficiently actually make that that whole move uh, across southern Utah. Yeah, yeah, and get down into the the southwest, depending on how much time you have. It's um, you know, I'm all about the road trip. You know, yeah. obviously Ross and I have done several, and when you know, I think one of the, th- the things that I look back on, and I'd be curious to know your opinion on this, that with 
the I, the day that we drove across Montana, yeah, the, like east to west, <clears throat> in one day, the yeah. first time, was one of the coolest. That was beautiful. Like stretches of highway and and ever, I just I always look back on that with a mm. smile. Yeah, east to west or west to east. East to west. That day was east to west. That yeah. day was east to west. So we were yeah we were heading out to Idaho and just got up. Wow. Um, I think we were in Dickinson, Dickinson, North, North Dakota. Dakota, and then just Got hammered it. The worst cup of coffee we've ever That's had. Right. <laughs> lives on, lives on in, in fame to this day. But yeah, and then just hammered it all the way through Montana. Um, and it was, you just, I think you develop an appreciation for, for a land, whether it be your country or another, by actually, you know, yeah, certainly flying is more efficient. But I, there, you see so much more from the ground. I mean, it's just it's not even you can't even make that comparison. Well, you get the random stops along the way too. I mean, <clears throat> you're not going to see any of that stuff flying. You're not going to see anything flying. But I mean, yeah. you don't get those those little one-offs, those little stops, those little towns. The characters. The, the, That's the thing. Yeah. The, yeah. The, 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 not the wrong turn, but like, oh, let's get off here. We need some gas. Oh, wait, the gas station's not for like five miles. Also, we're in some little town, and we're walking around taking pictures of the murals on the sides of the buildings, like. We never would have seen that before. Yeah, well, that's, that's what makes fun. the story, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and I think that that's what makes it so interesting. There's there's a richness to that that you just can't replicate unless you actually get out there and do it. And I mm-hmm. think that the whole, you know, whether it's, you know, just the vagabond is probably maybe a little bit too strong a word. But that sort of, I'm just going to go see what's out there approach. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't need anything fancy. I got a pair of boots. I got enough money to get me from point A to point B. I got passport if i need it and i got a backpack with a change of clothes like let's go a sense of adventure yeah yeah yeah, i mean that i that is if there was one motivating if i had only people had to say what is the one motivating drive in your life it would be that more than anything i mean look around you like i mean this room is a representation of it yeah so i anytime that people like you know when i met you the first time and we just got talking and i was like oh okay He's just like us, like, got to know this guy. So I think that that's, I think that that's really cool. Yeah, some people call it a wanderlust, I think. Yeah, yeah. very much, very much so. Funny, though, because uh, I'm not doing too much wandering uh, these <laughs> days with uh, the nine and the four-year-old. Yeah, things, things change a little bit, but... <laughs> Will you? Will you take him with you? Yeah, it's funny. You know, we were, we were climbing earlier tonight and uh, Ross and I were talking about how our, our nine-year-old sons are buds and we've both taken them climbing with us uh, over the years. And uh, he asked me, so uh, he must be getting to the point now where he could kind of blow by you on the wall. And, And I said, well, it's kind of funny because I took him out to Oregon where he was born uh, as a six-year-old and like got him up on uh, this place Smith Rock uh, which is a it's a global mecca for sport climbing and so I got my six-year-old uh, you know up on uh, up on the wall which for most people sounds pretty crazy uh, if you're not into uh, climbing so he was uh, but, probably the oldest kid on the wall yeah there. yeah yeah right 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 yes and 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 you know, all very safe and and technical uh, in that uh, but uh, at the same time we came back to Milwaukee after the fact we had a great time he loved it and then it's like hey do you want to go to the climbing gym he says yes, and then we get to the climbing gym, and it's like, man, like that's just not the same, Dad. It's like he sat 50-yard line 
you know, at Lambeau during the playoffs. And now I'm asking him if he wants to go see like the local high school team play. Sure. Uh, and I saw, I spoiled him. Uh, and, uh, and, and so we're, we're working back into it, but I'm not, I'm not pushing it. Uh, cause I know that, uh, uh, no offense, Adventure Rock uh, is not uh, is not cutting it for him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it's better than nothing, though. And I think that's it, right. you know, like also to have a place. And again, that sense of community, right? Mm-hmm. You have people that are going there, and you know that you can sort of talk shop with people and maybe meet kindred spirits and kind of have that experience to the degree that it's possible here. Mm-hmm. You know, like obviously you're not going to replicate something like if you were out west. Mm-hmm. But to have at least some vestige of it here, I think, is, is mm-hmm. a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's yeah. cool. And just the experiences for the kids, too, you know, exposing them to so many different things, giving those opportunities, you know. you know, Maybe he doesn't like the indoor gym right now, but that's not to say he doesn't like climbing. It's just that, mm-hmm. you know, he, he was spoiled by that, that one time. And who knows, maybe he'll go out to Santa Cruz and go to school there or something. <laughs> yeah, you can only yeah. hope and dream for your pocketbook that he does. <laughs> 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 yeah. Dad, I'm burned out in New Zealand. Yeah. Need to have some fun. Yeah. Let's, let's, go, let's go UW system here. Yeah. <laughs> so you're in New Zealand for a while, and then from New Zealand to where? Uh, yeah, so at, at that point, uh, it's, it's time to get back stateside, uh, reconnect with family, and uh, you know, start moving um, career-wise uh, forward. And so I started my, uh, my professional career in um, anti-hunger, nonprofit leadership, essentially. Mm-hmm. So I uh, got a gig um, out of Washington, D.C. Uh, uh-huh. with an organization there. It was like basically a subcommittee of Congress um, that was focused on domestic uh, food insecurity, hunger relief issues, and sure. so started as like a policy analyst, basically. Okay. Uh, policy re- researcher, policy analyst. And this uh, was something that like you felt a personal draw towards or someone had approached you or help me yeah. make the, help you make the exactly. bridge from... Yeah. Yeah. religious history studies to that's not yeah that, that's not the bridge as much um as it was um something that i had already been doing um throughout throughout all those years oh really uh, yeah and so uh i used to ride my bike um from my house um here in milwaukee down um to uh volunteer at this place um hunger task force sure uh, and so uh, started some of those experiences as a teenager when uh, you know a lot of us uh, as a teenager are, are looking for meaning and yeah. uh, looking uh, looking for experiences and to help kind of um, understand uh, you know where we are in the world around us and so uh, anyways I had some really powerful experiences as a kid um, helping other people um, and so I just kind of kept with that mm-hmm. and so then when it came time to um, do work uh, it was important to me to find work that was uh, of service mm-hmm. and being uh, a man for others is something that uh, I've always uh, carried with me um, and strive towards and so I uh, ended up finding this work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, in Washington D.C., um, but um, you know you're still young enough to um, to play at that point. Um, so uh, I didn't think it was time to get too serious. Yeah. Okay. 
so uh, you know, there's some there's some things on your list that you want to check off before you you know start buckling down and uh, lose that <laughs> flexibility. Uh, that okay. You so, so what was that? What was on the list? Yeah. Uh, so uh, my my buddy and I um, uh, decided that uh, Park City, Utah, um, was uh, the the destination. Okay. And so uh, we, uh, he was uh, doing uh, pre-med studies um, at um, University of uh, Utah there in Salt Lake, mm-hmm. it's 30 minutes down the road. Uh, and I got a gig teaching snowboarding for the winter uh, at, uh, at the mountain resort. So you were in D.C. working Did for... Did my gig for, it was basically... Like uh, an internship? It was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. And yeah. then we're like, okay, that's enough of that. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. We've had a stressful bit of a time here. Right. I've had a real job. I think I need to play. We, I, I'm finding a pattern here. Right. right. Yeah, it's funny because uh, because a big joke um, in our family. Um, so this is my uh, my buddy at the time who now is my brother-in-law. Um, uh, so it's now a joke in the family that uh, he and I would say things like, well, you know, this is probably the last time. <laughs> this is probably the last opportunity you know okay. so uh we would we would talk ourselves into the next adventure okay okay, okay. <laughs> so uh yeah we we knew that we knew that we were you know bound for uh uh careers and responsibilities and family and all those things um but at the same time you know we're we're still like we're 23 so sure uh, what's the big rush uh at that point okay so so park city for well, uh, Park City. I know that I know that we skied seventy days that winter, mm-hmm. uh, and went on an epic road trip, uh, like you were talking about, uh-huh. um, from Park City um, to this place in Canada called Kicking Horse, um, following the Rockies and hitting every ski resort um, on the way. Okay. Um, so it's like two weeks, something like that. Uh, and, and so we would, we went from, you know, we, you go around the park city area, you go, um, Alta snowbird, uh, and whatever's in the Cottonwood Canyon. And then you go to up to park city where then you have, um, you can go over to Sundance, you know, Robert Redford's place. Uh, and then you can go to, um, Deer Valley, park city mountain resort, the canyons, and you keep going North and you go to powder mountain and keep going North. You're going to end up in Jackson. Uh, and so then you go to Jackson Hole, you get across the Tetons right. into Idaho. And now you go to grand Targhee, which top five amounts of snow and champagne powder every year. Uh, one of the like best you know, undiscovered uh, ski destinations in, in the United States. And then keep going, you go to Big Sky, uh, and then you can go to like Missoula, Montana, you go up to Glacier National Park, um, Whitefish, Montana, and then you're into Canada, um, in the Canadian Rockies at that point. So. So we did that, uh, and and now it's time to get serious. <laughs> <laughs> so a little more play time, and then and then and then uh, yeah, we ended up uh, uh, getting into our career paths a little more seriously after that. Okay, so yeah. Park City for, from Park City to where? Park City, uh, we are in uh, New Orleans, uh, Louisiana. 
Uh, my wife and I worked there for a couple years, okay. um, and then career opportunity up in the Pacific Northwest in Portland, Oregon, which obviously is appealing to all of these other sensibilities about sure. me. You know, uh, <laughs> so uh, that was an that was an easy sell. Okay, and so yeah, worked there. Uh, what was for, your impression of New Orleans? It's it, it's really. Um, it's really interesting, you know. In New Orleans, I'm assuming in like 2007, 2008, is that probably this was this was uh, more like, um, yeah, it was two, it was right around then, so it was post Katrina, but not long but after it was Katrina. pretty immediately post Katrina. Yeah. Uh, so there were sections of the city that you know looked like a war zone. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were just completely um, demolished um, mm-hmm. from Katrina. Um, others that had begun to rebuild since. And so, um, of course, they rebuilt all the touristy areas first. Sure. Uh, and uh, started, you know, attracting that business back to the city um, again. So you'd go through areas like the French Quarter, and it was like nothing ever happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you go a half mile one direction, mm-hmm. and it was a totally different reality. So it was it was kind of polarizing on a daily basis um, and uh, my wife was working in the public school system there which had its own really unique challenges um, mm-hmm. about it um, and so they were rebuilding their school system rebuilding the city uh, and at the same time partying as hard as anybody um, in the lower 48 <laughs> so those guys have fun uh, and the, is it the locals that are partying or is it everybody that's coming to New Orleans it's everybody is it yeah uh, it, it's everybody um, the the partying's different uh, you know so the the quintessential um, New Orleans partying um, you know down on Bourbon Street is different than partying um, in Uptown, uh, you know, or on Magazine Street, um, and like these are the places where the music and the art is being made. Um, you know, the this is the New Orleans culture, sure. Uh, not the, uh, you know, not the uh, throw your beads um, at me. Interesting. Uh, so uh, it's it's such a uh, incredible place, a confluence of Spanish, French. American Caribbean, Caribbean culture. Yeah, uh, it's a and, very unique yeah. sort of blending of things. I've I definitely yeah. agree with that. Yeah. So we loved it, um, but had other opportunities, and so uh, we moved to Portland, Oregon, mm-hmm. uh, and loved loved living there. Um, but uh, after five years working at uh, an organization similar to Hunger Task Force, where I was talking about riding my bike down to to volunteer as a kid. Sure. Like, um, and then I had an opportunity to come back and, and work with them and uh, really at that point uh, do something meaningful in the community that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. Is that what drew you back? It was a big part of it. Um, family, too. So we just had a son. And sure. when you when you have a kid, um, it... it does change your outlook on a lot of things and so the uh, proximity to family sure uh, became uh, of of the utmost importance um, to uh, me and uh, my wife and so we decided that it was the right time to to move back um, and it wasn't because uh, we weren't going to miss uh, you know, driving an hour um, with my season pass to go snowboarding <laughs> at right. Mount Hood Meadows. You know, it's like, oh, it looks like there's snow coming on Wednesday. 
it's when it's Monday now. I'm gonna start developing a slight cough, you know, here. Uh, <laughs> you and everybody else uh, yeah. in the office. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. So. So for people who aren't familiar, tell us a little bit about the Hunger Task Force. Yeah, Hunger Task Force uh, is a nonprofit um, serving uh, Wisconsin. Uh, it has been around since 1974. Mm-hmm. And so coming up on 50 years old, um, it actually started out uh, as a group um, of concerned mothers and teachers uh, in the inner city who Mm -hmm. came together as advocates uh, because they were seeing the ill effects that uh, hunger and malnutrition were having upon the kids' ability to learn. And for kids who are living in poverty, the ability to learn is of the utmost importance uh, and uh, in, in terms of their upward mobility. Uh, and so uh, this became um, a advocacy group um, within Milwaukee. And so those are the roots really in uh, childhood hunger, advocacy, grassroots public policy advocacy. Um, so. The organization continued into the 80s, and there was a recession in, uh, in the 80s, uh, and so there was uh, a lot of uh, poverty and need, and so people began giving food donations to this group of advocates to the point where they said, all right, well, we need a place to put this. Um, to store it and then distribute it. And mm-hmm. so they basically, uh, you know, a food bank mm-hmm. was born. Mm-hmm. And so they started a food bank. And now, um, you know, it's uh, the, the organization um, has been become an institution of the community um, in the decades since. Uh, and, you know, right now, uh, you know, we're uh, a year into the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we've seen record uh, levels of, of need, um, from the job loss, you know, um, in particular, um, you know, as, as, as well as just, uh, you know, for, for low income, um, seniors, um, how hard, um, this has been, um, for them. And so, yeah, I mean, we're serving 50,000 people a month, um, at this point. Where do you guys get, um, you know, funding, where do you guys get food? Sure. How does this, yeah. where the this, resources come from? Where do the resources yeah. come from? Yeah. So, uh, various places, um, the funding, um, is, um, private community driven. So, um, it's, it's really local, um, and donor, um, driven. Okay. So it's, uh, we, we live in, uh, Milwaukee, which is a, a very, um, giving community. Uh, not all communities are like that. Um, and so people here really do care uh, ultimately about what quality of life their neighbor has. If they see someone struggling, they would want to help them um, mm-hmm. and uh, pretty innately. And so uh, we have really generous community support um, locally, mm-hmm. but then, um, then there's also federal um, programs through the USDA. So the emergency food assistance program is a big one. Um, And so essentially um, this program is a commodity prop. So um, if the um, cranberry farmers um, are having a banner year uh, and there's a surplus of cranberries on the market, um, the price of the cranberries is going uh, down uh, then the USDA can utilize this program to step in, purchase some of those, and then use the food banks as an outlet for that. So uh, it's 
uh, it's a commodity program um, mm-hmm. through the USDA. So that's that's a major source um, of food um, for us. So um, during the during the uh, entirety of the pandemic, um, that federal resource has been really strong and so one of the things that that you know i heard about during the pandemic and obviously this is i did no legwork to verify this or not but you would hear things about how you know farmers would have like tanker trucks of milk that they couldn't do anything with and they would just have to like dump it yeah is that it seems to me like with such a need out there that those instead of is wasting these resources that these resources would have gone to an organization like the hunger task force spot it on. was that yep. so i guess my first question is did those things to your knowledge actually happen if so why and why isn't there some sort of a mechanism in place for the prevention of waste like that where mm-hmm. it can go to people in need right yeah exactly i mean it, it uh it, it's a win-win-win because it's 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 helping farmers it's helping people in need and it's helping the economy Uh, and so uh, we actually instituted something um, uh, during the pandemic called the dairy recovery program okay here in wisconsin um, in the wake of that kind of news Mm -hmm. Uh, and so we were able to work with the state of wisconsin and the department of agriculture um, within the state of wisconsin Mm -hmm. to then connect to small locally owned um, family-run uh, dairies mm-hmm. uh, to be and cheesemakers mm-hmm. to then be able to leverage donor dollars that we have, mm-hmm. um, as well as funds that were becoming available through the federal government coming down through the states. Sure. Um, to then purchase from them and keep them solvent uh, during the pandemic. Uh, and so we have countless stories um, of those small businesses that were essentially saved because because of that um, sure. so you're spot on in, the, in that read okay it, what you know it's one of the questions that i always have is how is a country as rich in resource as ours how do you still have so many people that are obviously in such desperate need and that is obviously a very sort of involved conversation which maybe we'll save for another time but i guess my question yeah. is it's a good question, though. It's one that I ask um, of every interview that I've done um, of a new hire for the last, probably, I mean, I think 12 years. Mm-hmm. That's, my, that's a standard interview question for me, um, mm-hmm. is why are people hungry? And so I would be curious, what answers do you get? A lot of a, a lot of times, so I mean, it's it's a great question because um, there is no technically right answer. Um, it's really just kind of a, a key into your understanding, you know, your thinking, your opinion. Um, but you know, obviously, um, education um, is a is a huge um, percentage um, of the answers, and inequity um, in the educational system and, uh, unequal opportunity, um, and access to education, I would say is probably one of the main answers that I get. Okay. Okay. Do you feel that, you know, another thing that sort of as an outsider looking in, you think to yourself, the government seems to squander a great deal of the resources that it has, um, you know, tax dollars. I have no idea where my tax dollars go hmm. right now. Maybe I know where some of them go locally, but federally things like that 
Do you feel that those monies are allocated in a way that is, you would say, at least for the majority of those dollars, well spent? Or is it, do you struggle to find them when you need them? Has it been a positive experience working with, you know, government officials? Is it a frustration? I imagine it's a combination of both. Like, what has your experience been when it comes to all that? Yeah, it's a it's a bit of a roller coaster. It's a, there's a bit of an ebb and flow, mm-hmm. as as you might imagine, depend upon, uh, you know, what uh, what administration you're in, what um, you know recession you're in, mm-hmm. uh, depending on that kind of a thing. But I would say that the programs that are established um, are effective, uh, but oftentimes uh, not well funded. And so I think we, we know, we know the solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a matter, um, of resources, um, uh, being dedicated towards them. So why is it so hard to allocate? I mean, so that's one of the things that I struggle with is you're talking about the well-being of your, of your fellow citizens, right? Mm-hmm. Of your neighbors. Mm-hmm. You would think that that would be priority one. Um, and you're saying that the solution is not a difficult one. It's just a matter of actually having the funding. So here we are in the richest country in the world, and apparently the solution is not difficult, mm-hmm. but somehow we still have people that go hungry. Like I just, right. the math doesn't add up to me in these equations, well, and I sometimes I, I yeah. find myself um, more than a little sort of frustrated yeah. at, at the situation in general. I imagine someone, you know, in, in your shoes, it must be even more so. Poverty is complicated. Feeding a hungry kid, not. Mm-hmm. So there's, there is a distinction there. Mm-hmm. And we have institutions at this point now, like I said, almost 50 years into the life cycle of our organization, we're an institution. Mm-hmm. We have institutions that prevent, you know, people from starving mm-hmm. um, and so this is a different this is a different kind of hunger um, that we're talking about you know this is a hunger where the single mother with two kids mm-hmm. is deciding to not eat herself mm-hmm. um, so that she can keep the lights on mm-hmm. so it, it's different uh, it's a different kind of food insecurity and a different kind of hunger it's the it's the senior you know who's living on so the poor senior who's living mm-hmm. in public housing and live mm-hmm. and uh, living on fixed income every month um, that can't get to the grocery store um, most of the time and then when they do they can't afford to eat healthy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it, it's it's a little bit more nuanced um, <laughs> here you know um, in in the United States um, but uh, real nonetheless do you find that there's a lot of collaboration between organizations like yours and other ones that are similar? For example, I know other people that work in, um, you know, in sort of a similar endeavors. Mm. Do you guys collaborate with each other or is it, you know, we sort of have our... Yeah, I'd say it's very, it's very, it's very collaborative. Um, and I think that we can, we can leverage each other's strengths. Mm. Um, to work together and so that's that's where we go 
uh, as an organization at our core, we're trying to put ourselves out of business. Sure. Uh, so uh, we're, you know, we're trying to leverage uh, any capital partnership expertise um, that we can to end hunger, not feed people. Right. Do you see that you guys are over time turning the tide or no? I do. Uh, I, I, I also, um, I also see that people, um, experience more dignity, um, in this service, um, nowadays, um, than maybe they once did. Okay. Uh, you and I were talking about the farm. Yeah. So uh, tell me about that a little bit, because yeah, I'm exceptionally so, curious about that. Yeah, so Hunger Task Force actually uh, has and operates a <laughs> farm, and so it's a 200-plus uh, acre fruit and vegetable farm, and the intent is to grow and produce um, our own fresh fruits and vegetables, uh, because um, in that supply chain that we were talking about, fresh fruits and vegetables are hard to come by. Uh, and so uh, we have uh, plenty of access to uh, non-perishable goods, can this and can that. Um, but if we're really talking about you know, public health and um, helping the most vulnerable amongst us uh, to improve their health through mm -hmm. nutrition, absolutely. You know, then and an these foods of it. are important and their understanding of it, right? So is we, there, so is there like a component of food education that goes along with this as well? There is. Yeah. We actually partner with the state of Wisconsin and have um, a program, um, uh, called, uh, it's, it's a nutrition education program. Okay. And basically, uh, it's entirely focused on teaching people about healthy food. Uh, okay. and it's primarily through the lens of cooking. Yeah, um, and so it's cooking classes that are focused on foods that are uh, generally accessible mm -hmm. um, to low-income people, mm -hmm. um, but still um, allow them to eat healthy and eat well. So the when farm was, is really like when about was that. the farm founded? Uh, so it's it's actually um, uh, one of the oldest farms in Milwaukee, um, and so uh, it actually goes back to um, the 1830s. Oh. I guess what I meant is, right. when was the farm founded as far as being part of your organization? Yeah, so after being a family farm, um, back in those days, um, you fast forward to the 1940s, um, post-World War II, um, Milwaukee, um, the prison systems are expanding here, um, and so the uh, county government um, decides that they're going to buy up this farm. Um, that's uh, on the outskirts of Milwaukee and um, build um, a new prison. And so like any prison back then, um, it's sensible to have a farm around it that helps to generate um, the resources needed to run it. And so uh, it was a prison work farm. So it went from uh, kind of a homestead, farmstead, uh, family farm in the 1830s. Now um, we're going to the 1940s and it's a prison work farm. Mm -hmm. And so it was going to be shut down um, in uh, around like uh, 2007. And Hunger Task Force was able to work with the county government um, to take over management of the farm and, and then start using it to produce fresh fruits and vegetables for the food bank. Who runs the farm? I mean, so obviously 200 acres, it's not a huge farm, but it's not a small farm. Yeah. So um, who's, 
So we have a small team of staff, okay. and then we incorporate uh, over 5,000 volunteers from the community on an annual basis. And so those form um, the real force of the work crews. Mm -hmm. And so you know, if you wanted to come out with uh, your family, or if you wanted to come out with your friends group, sure. or if you wanted to come out with your corporate group and do corporate team building, mm -hmm. you could come out and work on the farm you know, as an urban person uh, who's even just yeah. acutely interested. Mm -hmm. And so there, uh, it, it does provide that opportunity for people as well to come out uh, and give back, do some service learning, do some team building. I think that's usually valuable. And I imagine that you guys must just be sort of inundated with people who are interested in coming out and experiencing that. Yeah, it has not been an issue to recruit um, for it, uh, and and it's fun, and you're working outside, and you're working with your friends, and Absolutely. as a for an urban environment, you know, people are interested in where food comes from and Absolutely. getting their hands in the dirt, that kind of a thing. I've had that conversation many times. I think that people, you know, there's a there's a very strong, and I think maybe even today, an even stronger desire because as people feel a greater and greater disconnect from their food or from sort of the you know just life in general you know you're not supposed to live in a cubicle you're not supposed to like be completely surrounded by concrete with no no dirt or no green and so people begin to yearn for that and look for it so i think having opportunities um like this farm and i know that we here in the city have there are several urban farms or um you know projects of that nature i think that that is hugely valuable on any number of different uh, you know, points, whether it be from, like you said, an understanding of what food actually is, why is it important, where does it come from, but also the satisfaction that you get from being involved in the actual production of it, I think is absolutely huge. Yeah, I'd say, you know, another element, just tying it back to the earlier part of the conversation, is that um, this is uh, a conservation project. Uh, I mean, and so this is 250 acres. Um, inside of Milwaukee County, which is a densely populated area, you know, and I'd challenge anyone to tell me where there's 250 undeveloped, um, you know, raw acres um, mm -hmm. in Milwaukee. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, inside of that, there's a 43 acre oak savanna. There's a maple hardwood forest. The Root River, uh, which is one of the primary watersheds of the region, runs through it. Uh, there's, there's prairie, there's wetland, uh, we have 900 fruit trees um, that we're managing. It really is uh, a really unique project. Um, and so that was one of the big draws for me coming back to Milwaukee because I had the opportunity to kind of um, spur in the development of this project um, and run it. And so that was my lifestyle for several years living back in Milwaukee was like living in Milwaukee, but I'm living Working on, on the farm, farm too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so. So what about it personally do you find to be like the most rewarding or maybe like the most intriguing for you? Yeah, I, I think that the focus of the organization continues to be kids and seniors. Uh, so for me personally, that was a motivation that got me involved at a young age, riding my bike down Wisconsin Avenue. Um, you know, uh, to now um, as an adult uh, with my own kids uh, thinking about what it might be like for them 
you know, to be hungry or struggling um, or for another family who's going through that. Right. So I think I think that's like big motivation um, for me um, and uh, continuing to be man for others. I think it's just a good. You said that ethic. twice. Where does that come from? That's uh, it's Ignatian. Um, so that's so the, you're a you're a hilltopper. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm an Ignatian myself. Yeah. So. OK. Yeah. That's interesting. That's interesting how that kind of comes around. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. But uh, you're living some farm life too, once in a while. Yeah. No. I mean, as often as possible. Um, yeah. My family has a farm, uh, Western Illinois. Um, but it's it's very much sort of as you said, uh, it's on a smaller scale. Um, but a lot of the the same themes, maybe. Mm -hmm. You know, an appreciation for the land, an appreciation for where your food comes from, um, you know, your place in all of that to to look after the land, to maybe leave it better than you found it. And if you go, people, out, you know, certainly I, when I was younger, had sort of an idyllic view of, oh, it's the farm. And then you get out there and you start walking around and certain things come to light that you just... I found shocking. For example, you know, the uh, the land bureau used to tell people that if you had erosion issues, just dump your trash. And this would include like old cars and washing machines and, and anything. And these people, okay, that's what they did. And so they would just take the stuff out into mm. what you would think would be sort of this pristine land and just, here you go. So we'll be back, you know, in the in the ravines or the you know the creek bottoms, and you'll find, you know, a forty-seven, you know, Ford, you know, half buried in the creek bed, and you think to yourself, and then it was, you know, you sort of begin to investigate a little bit, and you realize that people weren't doing this because they were callous; they were doing it because they had been instructed to do it. And you're like, oh my god, mm. like, wow, did we get that one wrong? Um, and then also when you um, begin to look at things like monoculture um, and you realize how unbelievably like detrimental that is to the land and then ultimately to the people consuming it you know people's people's understanding for as for as technologically advanced as society has become our understanding of the most basic principles is so void that it's almost inconceivable it's like you know i've lived in several places and some of them are very agricultural and you can't have a record corn crop coming out of the same piece of ground every single year for 20 years without consequence well what well, well without you you're you're messing with nature right the earth is like a bank right there's only so much money in the bank you go to the bank you take money out and eventually if you keep taking money out of the bank the bank is empty money has to go back into the bank. So that's like the earth. There's nutrients in the soil, crops grow, these are the nutrients, you eat the nutrients, and then the nutrients have to be replenished. And people you know, have known this for millennia. This is things like composting or crop rotation or the use of different plant varieties to work in harmony with one another. But to simply grow the same strain of corn on the same piece of ground endlessly and you're like, how can this possibly be? Well, then in the spring you watch and here's the farmer coming through with giant tankers behind his tractor, just 
pumping God knows what as far as chemicals into the soil. And then you're like, interesting that the nearby towns have three times the national rate of cancer. And how no one has this conversation. We just sort of blindly go along with it. So anytime that I hear somebody like yourself start talking about the importance of education, Mm. I couldn't agree with that more. Mm. The need to educate, not just in the classroom, certainly in the classroom, but outside the classroom as well. But also the, the need for that service. Those of us that were fortunate enough to find ourselves in these positions of, you know, good, good fortune have, I think, an, an inherent responsibility to try and pass that along to as many people as we can. I think that I'm, you know, I'm always amused at how someone's willing to pay $7 for a cup of coffee but they're going to step over the homeless guy on their way into the Starbucks to do it. Like, we just completely lost your humanity. Mm-hmm. And then you hear all this stuff on TV or social media about everyone, and they're they're so woke or or whatever, and they're so they're just so progressive. And you're like, you're so full of crap. Like, it's just this endless nonsensical like posturing. Like, if you really cared. Go do something. There's someone who needs a hand. There's, there's an old woman who can't get to the store. There's a kid that doesn't have enough to eat. There's, you know what I mean? Like, there's way too much talk, especially in this country, and not nearly enough action. Everybody focuses on things that are absolutely nonsense, while at the same time, you have your fellow citizens truly suffering. Like, do me a favor jam your fist in your mouth and go do some work do something Mm. yeah i just i cannot for one second palate just even another morsel of that plate of horseshit (laughs) it's funny man when when you were talking i just kept thinking about um stewardship and you're talking about just what what we need to teach each other what we need to teach our kids and a lot of that does come back to stewardship it's stewardship of planet, stewardship of resources, stewardship of our culture um, and our, our values uh, as a culture. I just keep coming back to that uh, as you're talking. I just think, how about just of humanity in general? Mm-hmm. Like, how about we're all just, let's just be decent people to one another. How mm-hmm. about that? Mm-hmm. Can we start with that? Because if we can't start with that, then all of the rest of it seems to be just completely irrelevant to me. If you can't start with the golden rule of do unto others as you would have done to you, then the rest of the conversation, we don't even need to have it. I don't know. What do you think, Ross? Oh, I mean, I agree with, <clears throat> excuse me, I agree with you guys in the sense that we have, we have completely lost perspective in this country. We, I mean, we were born with a lottery ticket in this country we have so much and the things we complain about our culture complains about if we only had to go to a third world country or a different place and see what they live with on a daily basis and see the real struggles they have you know our struggles are oh my internet's not fast enough fucking kidding me that that's not a struggle and uh I mean, I, I'm, I'm guilty as anybody. I get lost in stuff sometimes, too, and I complain about shit that doesn't matter. Um, 
but it's conversations like this and and getting out there and being active in your community and and trying to help out that brings you back to that you know going helping at the farm in a hunger task force or volunteering to pack food boxes or or giving money as you're walking into a, a coffee shop or whatever i mean those are the things that can bring you back make you understand like i have it pretty damn good we have it pretty damn good in this country we need to remember that we need to quit arguing with each other over frivolous bullshit and get back to helping each other i think you know one of the things that i hear you talking about with you know the hunger task force and the farm and and all of the people that especially the volunteers and so forth is again that sense of community there's a sense of you need that you need to have you need you need to feel like people care about you well if that's the case and that is the case for all of us then you need to make the effort to care about someone else mm. there's way too much of this me 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 enough of that enough of that what's somebody else mm. the last time that you put someone else before yourself in anything make that a point of your life like make sure the people around you are okay and if you ask someone are you okay stop and actually listen you know like there's a there's a there was an author he was a samurai his name was uh, Miyamoto Mushashi and he wrote this amazing book called the book of the five rings I've read it I know I've given a copy to Ross and he had he was prophetic in his wisdom but one of his greatest lines was, do nothing that is of no purpose. Like everything that you do should have a point. And maybe we can begin to make the world this better place that everyone says that they want it to be by just taking small steps in that direction. Looking out for each other. Volunteering. Hey, you got a Saturday with nothing to do? Maybe I'm going to go and I'm going to volunteer some time down at the farm or I'm going to go to the food shelter or whatever. It doesn't make a difference, but you're going to do something. Right. And then maybe Saturday night you're hanging out with your buddies and they're like, hey, man, what would you do today? And instead of being like, I didn't do anything or I watched the game, be like, oh, I went down and I worked at the, uh, I worked at the shelter. Right. And maybe one of the guys is like, oh, that's, tell me about that. And then one becomes two and two becomes four. And you begin... When did leading by example fall by the wayside? I just don't know when that happened. I mean, that's a core tenant in my life. Like, mm. it's like Gandhi said, be the change you wish to see in the world. Well, yeah, I mean, it's also, I think people don't realize how good it feels to help their neighbor, help their friend. I mean, you go and you work on the farm for a day on the weekend or whatever. I mean, I bet the smiles on those people's faces is ear to ear when they get done. Right? Absolutely. And they go home, and that's it's the best night they've ever had. It's the best meal they've ever eaten. They're smiling. They're joking around. They're having a good time. They're tired. They're, they're sore. Tired. But that's okay. But that, but that's what <laughs> that's that's when the rest feels good then. Yeah. Right. You know what I mean? If they loafed around their couch all day, that rest at night would feel the same as it did all day long, and it would be a complete disappointment mm-hmm. to their whole day. Mm-hmm. But the fact they get out and do something, it, it's just people forget that feeling of actually doing something or working for something or doing for the common good and how good that actually feels mentally. I think that's something that I connected to as a kid. 
And so then I just kept following that mm-hmm. um, into, you know, at this point, 15 year career. Sure. Uh, so, yeah, I think that, I think that that's so true. I think what you're doing is vital. I think it's vital. I think that organizations like yours and, and those similar to it, it's a, it's a light of hope. It's a light of hope that the priorities, at least of the community at large, have not completely like fallen into, you know, just frivolousness or, or greed or, you know, self-satisfaction, but that there are people that are willing to spend their time and effort and resources and blood and sweat towards a better future, not just for themselves, mm-hmm. but for all of us. And so I commend you for that, man. I think that that is yeah, thanks. absolutely, like I said, vital. I think without that, I think we're lost. So um, you can definitely count on me coming down to the farm and picking yeah. up a shovel and okay, getting to work. You got it. So um, I'm curious, you brought me, you know, you brought me some honey when you first came in. You guys have bees down at the farm. Yeah, there, there are bees there. You know, obviously uh, the, the main goal of the bees uh, is pollination. pollination. Good for you. Uh, but uh, the, there is a fun byproduct there that we get to share with friends mm-hmm. uh, and with donors. Uh, uh, and uh, so, yeah, it's just, uh, it's just something fun uh, that comes out of the farm. We have some apiaries there, uh, as you were talking about, um, sustainable agriculture. Mm-hmm. So we've taken um, a traditional um, system and really modernized it um, towards a sustainable uh, approach to agriculture that considers a lot of the things that you were talking about. Um, sustainable in any particular regards, like sustainable as far as like solar or sustainable as far yeah. as like you know, uh, water, you know, usage or things like this, how? Yeah. So it's primarily driven by, um, agricultural practices, um, that are considered sustainable agriculture. Sure. And, uh, so some of that, um, does tie into the agro ecology, Mm -hmm. uh, and the approach to the management, um, of the whole farm. It's a pretty forward thinking. I mean, are you working like, is this something that, you know, you're working with University of Wisconsin on? I mean, like, who gets involved in this? Because I'm more and more excited to hear everything that's yeah, coming yeah, out yeah. of your mouth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, it, it, I mean, it's really it's really an emergent field okay. uh, at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's, there's a lot of resource out there mm-hmm. uh, for sustainable agriculture. And so uh, University of Wisconsin was actually at Madison um, College of Ag mm-hmm. uh, was really critical when we first launched this. I moved back from Portland. I don't know a um, thing about it other mm-hmm. than I'm like a, a, a nonprofit um, leader and developer. Uh, you know, and so I'm out trying to make partnerships in the community so that we can fund this. Sure. Uh, and so I need to lean on people with that type of expertise to, um, to really get in there. So we started an internship with UW-Madison School of Ag. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we had like a cohort of interns some of them are still here uh you know like almost uh you know, almost 10 years later and they started mm-hmm. as interns and now they're like running the farm mm-hmm. uh, so yeah a lot of a lot of it was um driven um a lot of that knowledge was driven through the university and have they continued to be involved as you guys have continued to expand things like as you guys get into things like 
bees or anything like that. I mean, this is obviously like people with expertise have to come in. Otherwise, yeah, that been, doesn't that doesn't as, happen. As, uh, as we've gotten more established, we've been able to recruit people with uh, different areas of expertise professionally. Um, and so now we have a crew um, of farmers that um, have uh, an extensive amount of tenure um, between them with particular skill sets and um so you know this is a uh, um, it's 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 a production scale farm last year we grew um you know over 600,000 pounds um you know um of um fruits and vegetables that is amazing you know so um like in in the last several years it's like over 5 million pounds of fresh produce you know i mean so, so it, there's 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 like it, we're, we're driving tractors and using implements and uh operating at scale you know what do you do like then obviously garden. that's you know you have all of that produce that can't all be consumed like while it's still fresh so do you have some sort of mechanism in place do you yeah. have like refrigeration do you what are you what are you yeah. doing so it's, with it's that? so it's a, it's a heavily diversified um, vegetable farm um and that we actually grow over 20 different crops um, and so, you know, most places, if you, if you did that, you would have a screw loose, um, because it's so complicated to manage, sure. um, at scale. Right. And so most places specialize in a couple things or uh-huh. one thing, um, or a few things, um, right. but over 20 things, why would you do that to yourself? Right. Uh, and, but, uh, but I think that there's a shift to that coming back. I think that yeah, there is. you're seeing a lot of small farms where you, like you, people are beginning to, I'm not going to do a thousand acres of corn. I'm going to do. 20 or 30 acres of a variety of different things because people again have that they're beginning to sort of come back to the understanding of sustainable practice and the mm-hmm. fact that this is healthy not only for the earth but for also for themselves and their families yeah i mean i think there's there's a lot of value to it um, from our perspective in one being able to offer uh, produce during the entirety of the growing season mm-hmm. and so instead of it being the week of broccoli, <laughs> it you know we have 25 different crops spread sure. out um, mm-hmm. over a four to five, uh, and depending on the year, maybe longer period. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know you're growing the greens uh, in lettuces uh, in the early spring, mm-hmm. and all the way through you know to the squash and through the tomatoes and the peppers and the corn and the melons mm-hmm. and the cucumbers and then uh, you know through to the late fall when you're harvesting your um, butternut squash um, and the pears and the apples uh, and, and all of that and so I think there's value in being able to offer produce over a longer period of time and so now the food bank has access regular access to a substantial volume of fresh produce over a longer period of time than just having like a one shot where then it's too much for the system. And so that's more of the strategy is to um, grow a lot of different crops and spread it out over a longer period of time to have fresh available. Is is this type of farm unique to your type of nonprofit or are there others around the country that are like this? Yeah, it, it's pretty unique. Uh, I, I do know that it's the, the largest of them. Uh, and so there's a lot, there's a lot that um, have more of the urban garden uh, sense and urban garden scale mm-hmm. uh, of production. Uh, but, you know, this is, you th- I tell people, like, think tractors. 
Yeah. Uh, and it's more of a uh, production scale um, farm um, set up to, you know, serve tens of thousands of people. Uh, and so uh, I, I know wanna, that's unique in that sense. If people want to get involved or contribute or how do they how do they reach out to you guys? Like, how yeah, can they do that? Best, best place uh, because we have so much going on um, all the time and um, there's always, uh, you know, um, current issues uh, that we're trying to educate people on and get people involved in um, is... Uh, www.hungertaskforce.org. Okay. So hungertaskforce.org, and that's a gateway to all sorts of things, including um, volunteerism, including um, becoming a voice. If you feel like w where you want to get involved is to lend your voice, uh, there's opportunities um, to get involved with public policy, things like that. So, what what do you guys need the most of? Do you need time volunteers do you need money i mean what's what yeah. do you guys are most in need of it's interesting for a long time we used to operate along a philosophy of encouraging people to give in the way that they felt the most comfortable and over the years um, it has evolved to where now we're just comfortable saying that we can leverage your dollar because we use economies of scale um, further than you can uh, yourself. Um, so as an example, you know, if you want to supply some peanut butter um, for the food bank, that you can go to the store and buy a jar of peanut butter, um, or you can pool your money together with, you know, a thousand other people, uh, you know, who are all, um, you know, giving 20 bucks. Uh, and we can buy a truckload um, of peanut butter. Right. Uh, at the semi. Um, so you're just talking about the economics. You're talking about buying in bulk as opposed yeah. to being able to just sort of get it on an individual exactly. level. Exactly. Yeah. And then and then the other advantage it gives us is that um, we can time it um, appropriately, mm -hmm. um, and so we can we can make those purchases based on inventory, uh, and based on what our need is. And so we might need um, you know we might need um, canned fruits in their own juices. Mm -hmm. We might need fresh vegetables. We might need breakfast starch. We might need dinner starch. Mm -hmm. Uh, we might need a different kind of protein. We might want to buy ground beef, and so we can really build out an inventory. Sure. Um, you know, with that flexibility. So, um, funding is is the most um, um, effective, but we rely upon the donation um, of time mm -hmm. um, from people. So, we on an annual basis incorporate over fourteen thousand volunteers mm -hmm. um, into our operation whether that's the farm, whether that's building food boxes for seniors, whether sure. that's um, working in our office, whether that's working an event, uh, whatever it may be, um, various opportunities. But, you know, you do the math on that and you extrapolate it into full-time employees. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're, you're up over 30 employees um, sure. at that point. So time um, is, is a much appreciated and always valuable gift. Well, I'll tell you what, man, I got to say that, um, you know, I knew a little bit about the Hunger Task Force, but I definitely did not appreciate uh, the scope and scale that, you know, that it was. And you got me, man. I'll definitely, uh, and I'll be happy to spread the word as much as I can. And, you know, I'll be happy to lend a hand and see if I can't get other people to come out there and Thank do you. that. And um, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to sit down tonight and to, to sort of walk through it with us. I think, as I said, I, I think it's... It, huge thing for the community. I think it's just an example, hopefully, you know, for, for people in general 
Um, and I will be very interested. I hope you come back, sit down with us again, and that we can talk about it some more, what you guys are doing going forward, and uh, maybe mix in a few more adventure stories too. Yeah, some climbing maybe. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> for sure. Hey, right. off the wall. So uh, do me a favor, let everybody know again what that website is. Hungertaskforce.org. Okay, excellent. All right, everybody, that's going to wrap it up, but uh, we appreciate you sitting down with us again. And, uh, again, if you want to reach out to us, it's uh, modernsavagenation at gmail.com or www.modernsavagenation.com. See you.